Now, where is it? I probably, to be honest, haven't seen it for 35 years, but I know it's here in my study somewhere. There's magazines, there's mementos. Is it in here? Old photos. But all my programs, because I was quite a collector, there's so much stuff in here. I've got cricket books, I've got my old grey nickels, I've got speakers, old photographs of my mum and dad. Ah, here it is. Here it is. It's about the size of an exercise book. Here it is then, the orange diary. If I open it up, the pages are falling apart, newspaper cuttings are falling out, tickets, photographs. It's the story of an adventure, a teenager on his gap year for the ashes of 86, 87. Oh, amazing, amazing time. You don't miss a ball of the ashes if you could possibly help it. It was a big ticket, it was a big thing. So we had EJ the DJ. It was fantastic. However anybody ever got on the pitch, I don't know. This is Elton John. It was just magical, absolutely magical. Magical, magical. I remember my dad, bless him, long gone, saying to me when I set off, keep a diary, because you'll never know when you need it. Well, I need it now. Just to say, there's 80s music all over this series, and we're not sorry at all. This is The Ashes, the England-Australia cricket series which dates back to the 1800s. But don't worry, this is a tiny bit of the story, and believe me, it's a really good bit. OK, we don't mind losing to everybody else, but we can't lose to the Poms. The build-up to the first test was appalling. We were rubbish. Couldn't win games. So everybody was kind of flawed. Yeah, something just switched on. Tomorrow, it's the ashes. This is table-thumping stuff. It was the happiest tour I've ever been on. I thought I was having the greatest time of my life. I thought this was terrific. <laughs> For as long as I can remember, I've loved the Ashes. And of course, for me, as a 13-year-old in 1981, Botham and Willis and Headingley and everything that happened that summer. Headingley 81, believe it or not, I was in a scout camp in Wales. And of course, being 81, no mobiles, no television. We didn't even have a radio. I didn't even know the result till I bought a newspaper the next day. And I remember thinking, how on earth did that happen? I'm completely hooked. I beg and blag my way to Old Trafford for the Test match that summer. Yes, I'm an England fan, but this isn't a one-eyed, pommy story. It's a moment in time for both countries. After winning the Ashes in 86-87, England go 18 years without winning it again. Ramshackle Australia say, never again and they quickly become a cricket superpower. This is about two nations, a sliding doors cricket story, thanks to the series, which somehow slips a little bit under the radar. Why do we never talk about 1986-87? It was incredible, inexplicable, crazy, chaotic. How do I know all that? Because I was there, just like our amazing Inside the Tour cast. Ian Botham here. My name's Mike Jatting. My passport says I'm David Gowan. This is Alan Lamb. I'm Francis Edmonds. Pat Cash. I'm Gladstone Small. Hi, Jeff Lawson here. Chris Broad. My name's Peter Taylor. Peter Who. Philip DeFratis. My name is Jack Richards. Hello, it's Alan Border here. There's plenty to talk about. It's 1986. In England, Westland, Wapping, GCSEs, the M25. 
in Australia, Bob Hawke, Spy Catcher, and an Ashes series between the two worst sides in the world. Well, that's an exaggeration. A little bit. Let's just say these were two proud nations with two awful teams. Yeah, I think the fact that Wisdom describes it as the battle for the wooden spoon of Test cricket puts it into some context. I'm Adam Collins, cricket writer and broadcaster. Two teams that were nowhere near as good as they have been historically coming into, you know, the most famous series of them all, the Ashes. Despite an 11 packed with household names, English cricket was in a bad place. We'd had an horrendous, complete blackwash, as they called it in the West Indies, sort of psychological damage done. So everybody was kind of flawed. You know, everybody, I mean, it, it was the nadir. It, was the, it really was the pit. That's the author, Frances Edmonds. We'll get to know her pretty well on this tour. That nadir, as she describes it, came the previous winter under the captaincy of David Gower. I suppose the previous couple of years, you have the satisfaction of winning in India. Very proud moment. Winning the Ashes 85, equally proud moment, is what every England captain dreams of. 85 was the, as it were, the height of my powers, the height of my success. I'd sat on the balcony at uh, the Oval at the end of the Ashes in 85 with tongue firmly in cheek. I'm sure the West Indies, you know, they'll be quaking in their boots as we you know, set off the Caribbean in January 86. Well, of course they weren't. They were still the strongest side in the world by distance. And we got our, I suppose, not expected. I hoped that we'd do better, but we got the usual drubbing. That was followed, uh, not by an incident Phoenix-like retrieval of the situation, but a very bad home season against India and New Zealand, if, if memory serves me well. Gosh, I mean, you, you, you have to laugh. Gower was still in charge, just. Some questioned his authority. Some believe Vice-Captain Mike Gatting was set to take over. It was quite difficult because David had actually rescued me, to be fair, because he took me to India on the 84-5 one, which was a, a huge boost to me. He sort of came and said, Gat, look, you're on this tour, you're going to play every match. Whether you're at three, whether you're at six, you're playing the whole tour. So get your mind around that. And it was probably the first time, for a long time, you'd felt like I felt at Middlesex, which was part of the team, etc., etc. So when we went to the West Indies, I had a few problems. I broke my nose, I then broke my thumb, uh, and I'd started off really well over there as well. But sadly, we, we had a bad trip. David, obviously, his captain, lost the series quite badly, and we came back to play India at home. One feels actually quite helpless. So I came back from that, had one test match in charge at Lords against India. It was a make-or-break game. Before that game, I had T-shirts printed up because there had been allegations in the West Indies as to you know, who was actually running this team, and it looked as though I wasn't anymore. That was the, that was the view from a distance and the view from a press box. So I had the T-shirts printed up. One said, I'm in charge, which was mine. And the other 11 for the rest of the squad of 12 had I'm not. And we trained in those at Lords before that first test of the summer in 86, uh, which was me making a point in a sort of my usual sort of quirky way. At the end of the test match, sadly, um, it didn't go well. And the chairman of then selectors, Peter May, said, uh, come on, I need to see you in the physio's room. So I, I wandered in. He said, uh, right, he said, um, we want you to captain England. I said, well, have you told David yet? He said, there's no point telling David yet until you say yes. And I said, well, how long have I got to take? He said, well, yeah, about five seconds. Do you want to do it or not? So I said, well, of course I do, but, you know, um, it just feels... It just felt horrible. There was a sort of ceremonial handing over the T-shirt, so I gave Mike uh, my T-shirt, I'm in charge, wished him well, and was very confident, of course, very confident in him, uh, that it wouldn't fit. 
Uh, <laughs> I think he can be very confident about that without a shadow of a doubt. Yeah, I had to stretch it a bit, I think. I think I put it in the washing game, he could stretch. Um, no, I think those got bin very quickly. So, yeah, the king is dead, long live the king. Mike took over. I'd have to say that when, when you've been through that, that sort of process over that sort of previous 18 months or so, losing the captaincy is never easy um, because it comes with a sense of position, a sense of kudos, a sense of responsibility. And when that responsibility is taken away, it's like a part of your being is taken away. So it was a bit of an emotional time. We didn't really say very much, I don't think, after that. There was not a lot you could say. We went up to Headingley, I think I lost, lost my first test match against India, and then managed to draw one at Edgbaston, where I got a few runs. We then proceeded to lose a test match at Trent Bridge against New Zealand. So I'd lost two test matches inside sort of four, four well, three test matches. I, I even had a chat with, I remember having a chat with David on the balcony uh, at Trent Bridge and saying, look, we've got all these good players, you know, I know Beefy's not here, but, you know, why are we, why are we playing so bad? And then all of a sudden we got Beefy back at the Oval. The final test match of a traumatic English summer. The Ashes on the way. I was looking for a point where we were turning things around and that was a good point in my own mind. That's what we were doing. So 86 is a disaster for England at home, but Botham returns for the final test at the Oval. To see the change was just quite incredible of the same team. I remember Beefy coming in, and I can't remember who was changing in his place. He said, he said, out of there, that's my place. Beefy's back in there. And the whole thing just seemed to change, which is just quite extraordinary. I was uh, more than ready to play again. I wanted to be back and playing. Um, you know, when you've got Australia around the corner, I was obviously excited, looking forward to going down under. Made it quite clear that I was ready. It's uh, Ian Botham here, known to all of you lot as Beefy. Famously takes a wicket with his first ball, old golden bollocks and all the rest of it, both of them doing as he pleases. What was the line? Who writes this man's scripts? Well, there was this aura around Beefy, and he was always going to have his say in that series. You know, had it not been for two days of solid rain on the last two days of the Test match, we'd have probably beaten New Zealand by an innings and plenty of runs. But both of them was cheered to the oval rafters. His return, significant, not just for that match, but for the tour ahead. Or so we thought. There was a conversation there, because I still think people after that test match, certainly some of the selectors, weren't sure they wanted to take him to Australia. Well, I think you'd be daft not to pick me against that lot. So I said to Beefy, I said, look, you know, just want to clarify things a bit, you know. Do you want to go to Australia? And he looked at me and said, what? He said, oh, of course I want to go to bloody Australia. I said, OK. I said, that's fine. I just wanted to check because, you know, sadly there are one or two who are, are, are slightly uh, against it. And uh, I just wanted to make sure. I knew you'd say yes, but, uh, you know, I just had to ask. Um, and, and he laughed at me. Well, if he did say that, I'd probably told him where to go. Someone in the press rang me up and asked that question. I can't even remember who that was. I just brushed it aside, so I didn't really take any notes of it. But if he did say that, I would have probably told him in no uncertain terms what I felt about the upcoming tour. If England were in crisis, Australia weren't faring much better. Well, Australia had lost to New Zealand home and away and could only manage a draw against India at home. But the framework that you need to think of the 86-87 Ashes being within is rebel tours and retirements. 
1984, they lose the big three on, on the same day. Dennis Lilly, Greg Chappell and Rob Marsh retire. And then in 85-86, we're heading towards the Rebel Tour era in South Africa. We've been influenced by the Kerry Packer movement by this point. World Series cricket, coloured clothing, global exposure, decent paychecks. It opened players' eyes. It tempted some onto well-paid Rebel Tours against the wishes of their national cricket boards. Well, when you only have six states at play and so you've got 66 frontline players and you lose 16 of them, yeah, that's, you know, almost 30% of, of some of your first-choice players. They weren't all first-choice players, but, but a lot of them were. Hi, Jeff Lawson here, Australian Test cricketer. Guys like uh, Bruce Reed, Merv Years was just coming into the side, Chris Matthews played that first test. So, so a lot of younger, inexperienced players were getting a game of test cricket. But you don't necessarily win test cricket with young players. We needed some of those old hardheads and, and they, they were off in, uh, off in South Africa earning their rand. Well, by this stage, we're seven years into the formal agreement that Kerry Packer's company, PBL Marketing, struck the peace agreement in 1979, which changed the way that cricket was funded in the country from top down, really. Uh, Initially, World Series cricket and the players being remunerated more appropriately for their labour. But as it evolved, it was about the ownership. It was about Channel 9 effectively running cricket and the marketing arm, PBL, controlling the way that it was sold to the public. A lot of the Sheffield Shield players are getting paid 30 or $40 a day. There was no contracts. It was all, you know, you had to play to get paid. So you, you tended to play with injuries. You try not to miss out. And we only got uh, full-time professionals in the in the mid-90s, really. And playing for Australia, the money was, was pretty poor. It, it got better after World Series and Packer, but then it, it decreased again. And, and that lack of respect for the players really, uh, I think it went back to pre-Packer days. And the fact that the Australian team have been so unsuccessful through that stretch of time, a very strong team goes to South Africa against the wishes of the then Australian Cricket Board. They go again in 86-87, which meant the main national team had far fewer players to pick from from the Ashes that otherwise would have been the case. We'd lost probably 16 of our best players during the Rebel Tour, and those players weren't allowed back in for, for two years. So 86-87 was the last season before they were allowed to come back and play for Australia. So we're still missing quite a number of the of the first choice players, which I guess it gave, you know, a youngish Dean Jones and Marsh and Boone their opportunities to play the game and get that experience. So, yeah, playing at home, feeling, you know, like we could do the job without being, you know, overly rambunctious about giving the Poms a thrashing. This is Inside the Tour, and I'm Mark Pugach. I've worked at World Cups, Ryder Cups, Olympics, the biggest events in the biggest venues. But all that was a teenage fantasy back in 1986 for this sports-mad 18-year-old heading out on the great adventure of life, the gap year. I was intrepid, enthusiastic, A-levels conquered. I didn't know much, except I loved cricket. So much so, my final destination on that trip of a lifetime just happened to be Australia. I made sure of it just in time for the ashes. Funny that. Wednesday the 24th of September 1986, London to Houston, Texas. No idea why. My dad bought the ticket, the rest down to me. San Francisco, Hawaii, Fiji, all great, but seriously lacking cricket.
When people ask me what my favourite sport is and I say football, because that's probably what I'm best known to present, they go, well, we, we knew that. But it's football because cricket is not a sport for me. Cricket is a way of life. Growing up with a father who loved the game so much that he created his own club, which still goes very strongly to this day, that he built a ground out of a field on the edge of a village in East Sussex for his club. And he was the groundsman and I was his assistant and we'd paint the creases and do the 22-yard chain and put the boundary flags out and we'd run the bar, we'd pull the pints and we'd sell the peanuts and we had a till like that till in open or hours that David Jason used to be bitten by that used to spring back. It's a way of life. It's, it's a glue for a community. It's all shapes and sizes and all classes who play cricket. And that's why for me, it's, it's, it's far more. And with my father having died a long time ago, it's a, it's a sort of unbreakable umbilical link with him as well and his memory that cricket's far more than a game and a sport for me. If you take this group of people, this group of men, basically who'd been hammered, um, humiliated, uh, excoriated in the media, and rightly so, so now we take a virtually the same team of people off to Australia. Now, what turns a team of losers into a team of winners? The big question. England's management needed to solve that and fast, except at that moment in time, they didn't actually have a manager. My name is Mickey Stewart. I was appointed as the first England cricket manager on the trip to Australia in 1986-87. People in the game, I've been in the game a long time, knew my views about how the game had changed and it required something akin to the football game and the football manager to be responsible for preparation, the technical side, how you're going to go about things. It was the end of my playing career. You could see that th how things were changing, how sport was changing, how much more towards a business it was becoming. So when I was appointed, I had certain views and, um, and could put them into operation. And I have to say, when we first met, we, we had a really good conversation. I was very comfortable with, with what Mickey wanted to do, how he wanted to do things, and we had a lot of you know, very similar ideas, so much so that out of the 16 that we sort of, uh, we picked, because we said, right, well, you pick your side, I pick my side, and I think we were probably about one and a half players out, which was fantastic, you know, considering we'd, we'd never spoken to each other or anything. It was Gat's first introduction to the captaincy. Things went very well and he was very good. I chatted to those senior players before we left London Airport on the lines that, um, you know, if you just your average performance everything that's achieved by the lads next door the less experienced but that'll be a bonus but if you do that we'll have a good tour yeah one of the first things I said to Mickey was look Mickey I haven't toured Australia I'm captain here I haven't toured Australia I'm, I'm taking sort of four or five guys on tour with me who have done three or four. So I said, I'm going to have to, you know, we're going to have to sit down, we're going to have to have a sort of a senior management group, if you like, of some sort. And um, we did, we, we, before we sort of left, um, we sat them down and I just said, look, fellas, um, I've not been to Australia before, you guys have been a lot of places, so I'm going to need your help, please, you know, and I, I really want you to be involved in this, because if we're going to win the Ashes, we're going to need your input as to what you think and, and how you think we should be picking teams and, and what we should be playing on. This was music to the ears of the man relieved of the captaincy just a few months earlier, David Gower. There was still a sense of diminished character, as it were. There was still a sense of being not quite what I was. I was 
outside of the inner circle, which again, you know, when you've been captain and part of a decision-making process, and you know, the, uh, you know, and Mike had been part of that as my vice captain as well, you sort of kind of still feel as though you would like to have an opinion that is valued. They left me alone for the first couple of weeks of that tour, which was probably not a good thing. Then they kind of dragged me back in, brought me back into the inner circle, which is a good thing. That's started the process of sort of kind of rebuilding my self-confidence. So I, I needed to sort of re-establish myself at that stage. And it was, you know, it was a good move from Mike and that sort of management team sort of to bring me a little closer to the core of things. So there's the old skipper, the new skipper, the returning superstar... But England are still rubbish. How does that work? Perhaps time for some fresh blood. Oh, God, yes. Philip de Freitas. What's happened to him? Right, Philip de Freitas, uh, ex-England cricketer. Leicestershire Academy coach. In 1986, I was on the Ashes tour in Australia. Oh, amazing, amazing, amazing time. I was just so excited about playing county cricket and just, you know, having a, a wonderful season. And we had Peter Willey and David Gower who were playing test cricket, who were always, you know, away for the test matches. And every time they came back from a test match, they would say, oh, yeah, you know, people are talking about your performances and they're asking questions about you. But I never actually, it never crossed my mind. I never thought, well, I'll be picked to play for England. I was just trying to cement a place in Leicestershire's first team and that's all it was. We finished the season and we thought, well, we'll go out and have a few drinks. And I remember the following day we had to go in for a testimonial six aside, which was at Grace Road. I felt rough the next morning and... <laughs> And we were we were walking into Grace Road, and I remember the uh, the, the the attendant and the gate the gate man Arthur, lovely little man. He was always nice to us, and he kept saying to me, "Oh, congratulations, congratulations, Daffy." And I I kept going, "Thank you, Arthur. It's been a fantastic season. Yeah, really brilliant. But I don't feel that well, Arthur." And he kept, he just kept saying congratulations, and I didn't know what he was on about. And he's turned around to me and he says, you don't really, you, you, you haven't got a clue, have you? I said, what do you mean I haven't got a clue? He says, you've been selected to, you know, to go on tour with England. So Arthur the Gateman told me I was selected to play for England. Uh, and, and, and that's how he was done back then. <laughs> Get used to that Daffy De Freitas laugh, by the way. There's a lot of that on this series. And there'll be plenty of him on this tour. Although Captain Mike Gatting didn't know it yet. All right, you're not going to be possibly playing in the first test match or two or the first few matches, but this is how it's going to go. You're going to get a chance, but it's going to be four and a half months and we're going to need you guys. And, and you've got to stay fit. You've got to stay focused. You'll be involved in everything. And I want your input because you're sitting on the side and if we're forgetting something, you can see it. You're going to be an important part. You're going to be running drinks on. You're going to have a, a good attitude. So if things are down in the outfield, you know, you've got to go out there and try and boost the guys up. So it was all quite important. So those first two weeks were, for me, very, very important. Which is all very well, Skipper, but you're not out there yet. The new boy's got some packing to do. From a kid who came from the MCC ground staff, suddenly, you know, sort of fighting to get into Leicestershire's first team, and then suddenly you're being kitted with all your England stuff, and it was just like, 
you know, and, and even my sponsor, my, you know, sort of back company sponsor, Slashinger, Slashinger back then, you know, suddenly I've got bats coming, you know, all the kick coming. And it was just, it was just surreal. You know, it was, you know, but it was exciting. It was exciting as well. So call-ups complete, gear dispatched, legends recalled. It's almost time to leave Australia, the ashes. Here we come. What happens in Vegas stays in Vegas. What happens on the cricket door stays at the cricket door. Except Francis Edmonds, that defeats the object of this series. You know that. So spill the beans in episode two as we touch down in Oz for all sorts of chaos. I mean, carnage. Yeah, carnage. And a bit of cricket on the side. It was, you know, cat, bat, cat, ball, cat, field because we, we were rubbish. We were totally rubbish. Totally rubbish. Inside the Tour, The Ashes is presented by Mark Pugach, original music and sound design by Lee Sperry, additional music Dan Compton, produced by Jonathan Obrent at 9419 for Audi.